0: It was spring 1997, a simpler time, a time when men and women everywhere were singing Wannabe by the Spice Girls, and you know you were too. If you were alive, you were. It was a time when uh, people were looking forward to seeing Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones battle aliens for the first time in Men in Black. Uh, Tupac released his double album, All Eyes on Me. Every week, millions and millions of people would tune in to see if Ross and Rachel will finally get together. And a little movie with a young Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes was finally released on VHS. If you don't know what VHS is, and we'll have a very long conversation. One spring Saturday, me and a bunch of friends decided to watch Romeo and Juliet, that movie that had come out on VHS at my house. And my brother and my brother's girlfriend decided to pop in to say hello. And one thing you need to know is my brother and I's relationship now is fantastic. We've, we're probably the closest we've ever been. And when we were kids, uh, we were pretty close. But when my parents divorced, our lives took drastically different directions. At this time, my brother uh, had already been in jail. He was using and selling various drugs. He was involved with all kinds of unsavory groups and gangs. um, And that's just who he was at that point. So when he came over, I knew that he was only coming over with one thing in mind, which was to cause me angst and pain and frustration. If you have siblings or if you are a sibling, you know that there's like this innate thing that exists where we just know how to make them angry very, very quickly. We know exactly what buttons to push. My brother was no different, and he decided to push all of those buttons. He wanted to, he wanted to get me from zero to 100 really quick. The first thing he did was talk during the movie. You just don't do that. If you do that, and I have a friend in here right now who, who does that. They're over here. I'm not going to say who, just Joan, And my brother was doing it. And he was doing it in such a way that he was hitting my other thing. He was picking on all my friends. He was just pinpointing every one of them and saying something mean or inappropriate. And then the third thing was is that he just kept smacking me on the back of the head. And to this day, like when someone does that, even if it's like gently, like I like tense up, like come at me, come on right now. And so I knew that my brother was just trying to get a rise out of me. I knew he was trying to make me angry, and I was really trying to, like, mitigate it. I was trying to be, like, you know, no, I'm not going to do it. So besides some choice words that I won't sing out from stage because it's inappropriate, like, I just was just kind of letting it be. And then he went in for the kill. He took his cigarette that he was smoking and decided to put it out on my arm right there. Let me stop right there. Most of you who've gotten to know me know that I'm a pretty happy-go-lucky guy. I generally mix well with others, I, I certainly lack patience, and I'm not perfect, and struggle with different things, but I'm not necessarily a bear to be around, I'm not that guy brooding in the corner, hating everything about life, I'm more of an optimistic realist, I always hope for the best, but plan for the worst, because I understand that sometimes life happens, so I want you to have that Topher in your mind as I finish the story, because the temptation will be to judge, but this happened over 20 years ago, okay? So my brother puts a cigarette out on my arm and I immediately pop up and he looks at me and he goes, oh, fill in the expletive. Let me pause again. So when I was a kid, my parents would tell everyone, Christopher has a really high threshold before he just loses it. Like he's a really happy kid. And the, the real sign was if I got tears in my eyes, my, my family would say, oh, you just, you need to run away. So when my brother put out a cigarette on my arm and I popped up, you know what? There were tears in my eyes. And so he ran away. He ran through the house and I began to chase And My friends were following all shocked. His girlfriend was like, stop it, stop it, stop it. My brother ran back through the house the other way, goes to the back bathroom, slams the door and locks it as if that's going to stop me. I put my shoulder down like I'm playing football again. I bust through the door, knock him over, and just begin to unleash my fury on him in ways that I thought I might as well have been in my own street fighter game. That's the only time in my life that I could honestly remember losing myself to anger in such a way. And the thing is, is looking back at it, I know that anger wasn't really the thing. It was all the stuff that was behind the anger. All of us, we get angry. There are things that frustrate us. There are things that will make us go from zero to 100. But we forget oftentimes that anger usually isn't the main thing. There's usually something else underneath it. There's usually something deeper. Anger is usually that secondary emotion. This morning, as we continue our series, the final week, we're going to take a look at a picture of Jesus being angry. And honestly, this little bit that we're going to look at this morning Oftentimes is either glossed over completely or worse, people will use it to justify their their ignorance. My hope is that this morning we can kind of see this picture of Jesus being angry, understand what's behind the anger, but more importantly, what the bigger picture is. Last week, uh, our lead pastor Chris kicked off this series and he talked about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem Jesus came to Jerusalem specifically for the Passover festival. A lot of you have probably heard at least the word Passover before, if you've maybe even seen it on a calendar. Um, If you've ever read the book of Exodus or went to Sunday school and you heard about Moses and Pharaoh and the seven plagues and the Red Sea, all of that kind of stuff, or saw the movie Prince of Egypt, this this is what we're talking about when we talk about Passover. Specifically, Passover celebrates the freedom that the Israelites finally had from slavery out of Egypt. That's what Passover is. And a part of Passover is this idea that people would come and they would sacrifice a lamb as a form of worship and gratitude. And I know it sounds weird to our kind of 21st century modern minds, but this is, this is background info that, that's really important to have. And that, that sacrificing of the lambs is a throwback to when God told Moses to communicate to Pharaoh that the firstborn son in Egypt would die. That was the last plague. And so every Hebrew family was informed: you need to sacrifice a lamb and take some of that blood and put it on the doorpost of where you live. And so the Spirit of the Lord and the seventh plague would then pass over, hence the name, those homes, and the firstborn child wouldn't die. So that's that's what Passover is, but it's a big, it's a big deal. About this time in Jerusalem, the population is about 80 to 100,000 people. But just like in Richmond, like when we have a festival, that population increases. Some historians put the population up upwards near a million or more people. And most of these people and most of these families are inevitably going to make their way to the temple to celebrate and to worship. And that's actually where we're going to pick up today um, with our verses. We're going to start in Matthew 21, starting verse 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons or doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now I want to stop just real quick. It's only two verses. But there's a ton in these two verses. There's a lot to kind of unpack, which it doesn't seem like there really would be. The first thing you need to know is that the language that's used here is not passive. It's very active. It is a more violent language. He is physically doing something out of frustration and anger we see that in the original text what happens though is that oftentimes we'll read this and people will fall into one of three buckets the first two buckets are more emotional responses and it's a it's a minority that fall in these buckets but one group will read that and go ooh i don't like this jesus i like my jesus like i like my bunny rabbit it's cute and cuddly and all about love and kindness and joy and peace and then you got the other bucket, also like super emotional responsive, like, yeah, man, flip the flipping tables. Enough of this joy and peace crap. Enough of this garbage. We're at war. We should act like we're at war. But the majority of us will read that and we'll go, okay, and we'll move on. The problem with moving on is that we miss so much richness and depth that's in these two verses. And the way we get there is just taking a look at the context. One of the most important aspects of reading Scripture, whether it's when you're by yourself or if you're in a reading plan or a small group, uh, if you're teaching or if you're listening to someone teach, is really doing your best to kind of get through your lens of the 21st century Western mindset and try to get back to what the original context of that verse is. The political and cultural environment, the things that were going on, the history, the people, the place, all the different players that come into play. So with that in mind, there's a few things that I just want us to understand to get a fuller picture. The first is that Jerusalem at this time was under Roman rule. So anyone coming from a distant land, which there were many that would come in from Passover, they would have to exchange their money for Roman coin. It's not unlike if you traveled today. If you go to Europe, you exchange your dollar for euros. If you go to China, yen. If you go to my favorite, Canada, you can exchange it for loony, which is the greatest name for currency in the entire world. It's no different today than back then. Rome knew that this was a perfect way to make a profit off of all of these visitors. Now, the money changers and the sellers of goods, originally they were further down in the city of Jerusalem, outside of the walls of the temple. But the high priest at the time, Caiaphas, who you'll hear more about later on in this message series, decided, you know what, let's just make this like really easy. We'll just move all of that inside the walls of the temple. And in the process, he gets some pretty good kickbacks. So now you have the money changers and these people selling animals. And the reason they're selling animals is because it was a problem to be solved. So many people are coming from such far distances. They don't have cars back then. They're walking, they're traveling, they're riding donkeys or camels. It's not always realistic to bring an animal with them. So you sell the animal there. People make a profit. Rome makes a profit. Everyone has convenience. And it just goes on from there. So when Jesus gets there, he sees this and he's angry. He's angry, but there's something underneath that anger. But oftentimes, we just see the anger. One more thing about the context that is often missed is this, it's a weird thing that, it's, it's just weird. It says specifically that he overturned the benches of the sellers of pigeons or doves. Like, why those people? What did they ever do to anybody? Historical records show that during Passover there were multiple different sellers of different kinds of animals and things. So why just the sellers of the pigeons or doves? Because the sellers of pigeons represent the plight of the poor. If you're poor at this time and you're coming to Jerusalem for Passover, that's the only thing you're going to be able to afford. You will have scrounged your money and your resources to travel all this way to buy a small bird just so you you could participate. So when Jesus comes, he's angry because instead of seeing an environment, what the temple was created for, which was to be a place of worship and praise and safety, it was a place where the poor were getting taken advantage of. It was a place where people were getting wealth off the backs of others. So Jesus was angry. He was angry because of that, but he was also angry because he saw people who said that they knew God, that said that they followed God, that knew the scriptures of God, and yet acted in such a hypocritical way to be completely against God. He got angry because the temple, which was supposed to be this place of worship and hope, instead became an extension of the political kingdom and not the heavenly kingdom. He's angry, and it's really easy to miss the bigger point because all we see is the anger because that's what happens when we're angry. When we're angry, we only see the thing right in front of us. I need to ask you guys, have you ever seen this meme? We're going to put this up here. You guys ever seen that? Okay, I'm not going to ask you how many of you have posted this meme, and you're going to know why in a second, (laughs) so don't raise your hand. I first saw this meme about four years ago. Um, I was working as a manager at a retail store, and if you've ever worked in the service industry, you know that you see the utter worst of people, <laughs> especially during the holidays. Like it, There are times when you go to work all happy, and the next moment you're going, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose my mind. I'm gonna get arrested tonight, because something bad's gonna happen, and it's gonna, I'm gonna do it. This is the night. This is when it's gonna happen. Side note, if you've never worked in the service industry, y'all better be nice to those people because they put up with so much that you have no idea about. So I saw this meme at just the right time. It was peak holiday craziness. I was just tired and done, and I saw this as I was scrolling through Facebook, which is a terrible thing to do anyway, and I laughed, and I was like, yes, this, this is who I'm going to be when I go to work tomorrow. (laughs) I'm just going to wait, and when it happens, I'm going to flip over a dining table, throw a sofa, and I'm going to be like, you guys, fuck, like, ah, like, that's going to be me. But then I grew to hate this meme so much. I began to see it pop up more and more in that weird subculture thing that exists sometimes with Christians. And what I began to see was people using this meme more and more as a way to justify their anger at something. Or justify their frustration or their political stance or some irritation that they have in the world and they were using this. And it became just this huge reminder to me of how many of us miss the point. So I, I need to be just real clear about something before we move on. Jesus flipping the tables at the temple is not your justification to be a jerk. It's not your example of how to climb up onto a sanctimonious high horse and look at the world below you with disgust. It's not your permission slip to make your religion your politics or your politics your religion and call it Christ. It's not your okay to lash out at someone who has hurt you. It's not your approval or your checklist of how to choose what best to be enraged about and angry about this week. It's just not. That day in spring of 1997, when I looked down at my brother's face, bruised and bloodied from my own hands, I didn't feel a sense of vindication or justification. I felt a deep sense of shame and pain. Because the brother that was on the floor, the brother that put a cigarette out of my arm, that was smacking the back of my head and talking through the movie and doing everything he could to make me angry, that's not the brother that I knew. The brother that I knew always protected me, he always looked out for me. When my parents would fight or my dad had been drinking too much, it was my brother who would say, Why don't we go next door? Let's go play outside. Let's go play a video game. He was the guy that if he saw me in line for lunch at school and he knew they were serving something that I didn't like, he would go up to the lunch lady and make an excuse for me so that I wouldn't have to eat it. That was my brother. And what was so hard is that behind my anger was so much broken heartedness heartedness, because that wasn't my brother anymore. The one who was always my protector became the very thing that he was always trying to protect me from. Behind my anger was so much hurt. And I tried to justify it because that's what we do, right? As humans, we like to justify our anger. We'll frame it in such a way that it absolves us of any responsibility. And we'll say things like, you know what, it was their fault. They had it coming. And we do this generally to assuage our own guilt and shame because I honestly believe deep down, deep down, we probably know that we're in the wrong. Listen, being angry, ungracious, unkind, hateful in real life or on social media, it isn't Christ-like. Even if we're using Jesus' anger as a scapegoat. But the only thing we're doing is missing the point. And as Jesse Carey puts it, we stop being known for our love and start being known for our anger. And that's not how we're instructed to live. Yes, the story of Jesus in the temple does show that our anger might be correct at times. But the life of Jesus teaches us that it's the exception, not the norm. And there's a huge difference between getting ticked off because someone doesn't agree with you, or because someone doesn't believe the same things as you, or because someone hurt you, And being ticked off because you love someone so much and you know that they are better than the way that they are acting. Behind Jesus' anger in this entire picture that we see is his deep, emphatic love for his father, his church, his people, and this great disappointment at how far away they had gone from the truth. So we could read these two verses and just gloss over them and we think that it's not that big of a deal. But for the people in Jerusalem at that time to see this man act in such a way, they were naturally going to ask, well, who the heck is this guy? Who is this guy to do this thing? Tim Mackey, a pastor and creator of the Bible Project, which if you've never checked out, I highly recommend. It's it's just a super great thing to look at. Um, He paints Jesus' anger at the temple as the equivalent of someone marching on the White House. Going to the seat of power and culture to clean house. But the difference between someone marching on the White House today and Jesus is one very loaded word, authority. And quite honestly, that one word is a word that most of us don't like, which is why it's the thing that we miss. All of Scripture, all of Scripture points to or is a reaction to Christ's authority. Jesus goes on to quote two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. And when he says, it is written, he is intentionally being provocative to the people he's talking to because he knows that the people he's talking to know the history of Israel. They know the oral traditions. They know the scriptures. They know the written word. And so he's telling them, like, it is written. You should know this by now. It is written. And he goes on to quote Isaiah 56, 7. When he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And the context of Isaiah 56, 7 is a little bit longer. It says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And there are two things that make this action in the Old Testament quote so significant. One is that the context, again, that background information that helps us understand this a little bit better, the context of Isaiah is about the coming kingdom of God. And what what Christ is doing is he is putting himself in the seat as the king. The second thing that's important is that it's global. It's not just Jewish, but it's for all nations. Continuing with the verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, they were ticked off, they were angry, because who was this man to do these things? understand that the healing of the lame and the blind is a huge deal. He's in the center of the city, the most popular place right now. It's not like someone came with some crazy lazy eye and like, you know, sniffly nose. He healed the lame and the blind. He, he cleaned house in the temple. And the religious folks look at him and they say, do you hear what these kids are saying? And this is one of my favorite parts, because when you start to understand context more, you can kind of see when Jesus is giving low-key shade and sarcasm. And he goes, yeah, I hear it. But, you know, you're supposed to be the, the religious people. Haven't, haven't you read? Did you just skip over that part of Scripture when it says, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? Did you just decide to skip that part? I hear them. I hear them just as people have said this was going to happen years and years and years ago. Jesus is doing all these things for one very important reason, to establish his authority. Christ establishes his authority, and people don't like it. They don't like it now. They didn't like it then. They didn't like it then so much that they began to plot to kill him. Jesus comes on a donkey, peaceful, gentle. He cleans house. He sticks up for those that need help. He heals people. He gives low-key shade and challenges the religious leaders of the time. And he does this because he's establishing his authority, because Jesus is king. Last week, Chris talked about the coming king. That's Jesus. And he has authority over everything, including us, which is sometimes a hard pill to swallow. At Area 10, our vision is, is really simple. It's to transform lives in the city for the city, and our values kind of point us in that direction. But behind all of that is one very, very core mission, and that's to make disciples. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth have been, has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And so that is our mission here at Area 10. Sometimes we're great at it. Sometimes we struggle with it, but that is where we are constantly headed and pushing. But what does that mean? to be a disciple? Well, it means to follow Jesus. It means to learn about Him more. It means to study His life and His Word. It means to be baptized. It means loving well and serving with intention. It means being honest with where you're at, your pains and your struggles and your, and your histories. It means being able to come together in community, bearing with each other's burdens. It means coming to a place where you can accept God's unrelenting grace and forgiveness, even if we don't deserve it. It's understanding that as 1 Corinthians 3 says, that the old temple is gone and we are now God's temple and God's Spirit lives in us. It's understanding that discipleship is not something that you simply arrive at, but it's something that's a lifelong process. To sum it up, a disciple is someone who lives under authority. And it means giving up something that a lot of us have a really hard time giving up. Our own authority. The uncomfortable, dirty little secret that many of us don't want to admit to, or maybe we don't even realize, is that we elevate almost everything above Christ. Almost everything and we ignore his authority. N.T. Wright, a brilliant theologian who I value immensely, said this about Jesus and the temple and missing the point. He said, the temple was a true signpost to God's future, but when the reality has come, if people insist at only looking at the signpost, they've missed the point, and they're on their way to idolatry. They look so hard at the temple, they miss the reality of Jesus, and we could switch the word "temple" out with any other thing, and it would still probably be true. We look so hard at our pasts and our futures. We look so hard at our struggles. We look so hard at our careers and our position in life. How much money? How little money we have? We look at our friends and our families and our enemies and our heroes. We look. We look so hard at our culture and our politics. We look so hard at our anger and reasons to be angry, and we completely miss the reality of Jesus. I mean, isn't that what we see today? People on every side of the spectrum getting angry about all kinds of different things, elevating anything under the sun higher than Christ, and then trying to justify it. We get so mad. We get so mad when Jesus doesn't fit into the mold that we want him to fit in. When the truth of the matter is that a lot of us don't even really know who Jesus is. And we definitely don't understand his authority. And the problem is is that we miss out. We miss out on the freedom that comes with surrender. Surrender. When I was talking through this message with my wife, Leanne, she, as she typically does, brought all kinds of insight to it that I just didn't see. Um, and one of the points that she made was uh, she said that the, the point of, of Christ's authority is not simply to let it roll over us and say, oh, well, isn't that nice? But it gives us an opportunity to respond. It gives us an opportunity to respond through worship and prayer and giving and serving and being in community with one another. And she said, it gives us the opportunity to finally let go of stuff, to put down all the junk, all that baggage that we carry around every day. It gives us the opportunity to experience surrender and the freedom that comes from that. Many years ago when I was in college, I worked at a few different Christian summer camps, which is a very interesting experience. One camp in particular that I worked at was legit. They had so many cool things happening and going on and activities. And one of the ways that they structured themselves is that each day the kids were broken into small groups. And those small groups would be with each other all day long and they would have these extended experiences that were focused on kind of spiritual disciplines and spiritual development, as well as, like, a lot of, like, really neat and fun stuff. Well, there was one day where I knew I wasn't going to be leading a group, and I was typically a facilitator, so I didn't really get to experience some of these things. And I went to the camp managers, and I said, hey, I would love to, like, do one of these experiences, because these are really cool. And so they gave me one, which was, like, the worst one. They said, okay, well, your, your experience is going to be um, going out into the woods, and you're going to sit there for three or four hours and not talk. And the whole goal (laughs) is to sit, observe, and listen. That sounds horrible. And so I said, that sounds horrible. Is there anything else I could do? And they both looked at each other and the one camp manager said, you know, honestly, we think this one is probably gonna be the best for you. And and I said, okay. So the time came, and I went, and I walked probably about a half a mile or a quarter mile down the road or down this path, and I found this area next to a big creek, and, and I sat down. And, and you guys, the first hour was horrible. <laughs> it was so awful. It was brutal. It was utter torture for me. I'm like, I'm not going to make it to three hours, let alone maybe four hours. By the second hour, I was like, okay, I guess I'll journal because I'm at a Christian camp, and that seems spiritual, I don't know. So I began to journal, except my journaling consisted of me making a list of all the movies that I wanted to see that year, which then turned into a list of my top 100 movies of all time, which, by the way, if you're interested, I'll send you a PDF, and then it became me doodling movie posters. So, you know, I was clearly nailing this isolation thing. As I neared the third hour, I thought, well, I guess I could pray. That's, that's, I'll pray. So I began to pray. Nothing eloquent or fancy, because that's not what prayer is about. It was just me talking to God, asking for things, thanking Him for things, praying for other people. And a weird thing happened as I began to pray. I began to be more aware of my surroundings. And I started seeing the different types of trees that existed and the squirrels that had been annoying me or entertaining me, like even the differences with them and, and how they chased each other and the way that the water undulated in the creek. But then I soon ran out of things to pray. So then I was like, well, okay, I guess I'll listen. So I asked God, God, what do you want me to hear? I didn't hear anything. I heard wind. I heard the creek. So I just kept looking around, and and my eyes kind of stopped on this big tree that had fallen over. And it had fallen completely over the creek like like a bridge. And most of the branches were all pointing down at the water. And I remember looking at that tree... And just feeling like this sadness and, and, and this idea of like, I hope I'm, I'm, I don't end up like that tree. So close to life, but unable to reach it. And it was that one thought that then made me start thinking about my life. And you know, I'm sure, the moment you start thinking of your life and you start pulling at your, that thread, ooh, who knows what's going to come out. So I did what any rational person would do. I tried to distract myself. I got a little stick, and I began to draw on the dirt and dig little holes. And I saw this little acorn, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to plant this acorn. I'm going to plant it. It's going to grow into a big tree here in this forest. And so I started to dig. And as I started to dig, I I started to feel this weird sense of urgency to, like, clear a path almost for it and, and and to dig deeper. And so I did. I started moving moss and dead leaves and pine needles away from where I was digging this hole with this little stick, and and I kept digging. And then I thought I was going crazy because in my head and my heart, I heard another voice that certainly wasn't mine, and it said, keep digging. And so I did. And I kept hearing, keep digging. Dig deeper. Keep digging. Get the rocks out. Get the dead leaves away. Get the old roots out. Keep digging. Dig deeper. Christopher, dig deeper. Christopher, dig deeper. New life can't flourish if the old life is in the way. Keep digging. Keep digging. Christopher, dig deeper so that new life can flourish. And now remembering putting the dirt over the acorn and wiping tears away from my eyes, and I was reminded of Luke 9, verse 23. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I had only been a Christian for four years at that point, and for some reason in my brain, I thought, oh, once I gave my life to Christ and I was baptized, that was it. That was the end of my responsibility. I didn't understand what it meant to be a disciple. And it was that day that I began to learn that becoming a disciple and a follower of Christ is not just a one and done kind of thing. It's an everyday thing. It's everyday choosing to put down all of that stuff and all of that baggage down so that Christ can be glorified through you. It's everyday choosing to follow Christ and allowing Him to use you It's every day being intentional to dig deeper, to keep digging, to get out the old roots and the rocks of the old life so that new life can flourish. It's every day surrendering. And it's every day choosing to live under God's authority, not our own. Will you pray with me? Holy God. Lord, I recognize your authority in my life and in our church's life. Lord, I pray this morning that um, you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the reality of you, that we don't let our anger or our frustration or our lack of context for truth uh, get in the way of seeing who you really are and what you have in store for our lives. God, this morning, I know that there are a lot of us in this room who have a lot of old roots and dead leaves and rocks that need to come out. Lord, I pray that you give them the courage to identify those. I pray that you open our eyes to our individual uh, lives that help us draw closer to you. And God, as we come to your table here in a moment to remember your sacrifice, I pray that we also remember your victory over death and the grace that we have. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.